I'm Nicholas Meyer. I'm the director of Star Trek II, known as The Wrath of Khan. I've been writing since I was five years old. I think of myself when, when asked to put down my occupation on passports and applications. Storyteller, not filmmaker, storyteller. It never really mattered to me what venue the story was going to be in. Play, novel, movie, television script, science fiction, comedy, tragedy, historical, pastoral. I didn't care. And by that time, I had also written some novels. I wrote The 7% Solution, which was written during the Writers Guild strike of the, I guess it was 1972. We weren't allowed to write screenplays. And I'd had this... Sherlock Holmes meets Sigmund Freud notion rattling around in my head for years and years and years. And, the, and then that was tied up in legal problems with the Doyle estate for a long time. So I wrote another novel that didn't have any problems, and that was called Target Practice. And, and that got published actually first before the 7% solution in March of 74. And then in August of 74, uh, 7% was published, and that became the number one best-selling novel in the United States, and it was on the New York Times list for 40 weeks. And suddenly I was, as they say, lifted out of obscurity. Yet I had never seen Star Trek, and uh, it was years later, I guess, 1981 or something, or 80. There was a movie that I very badly wanted to make in the wake of time after time. And, Nobody was interested in letting me make this movie, so I was sort of pouting. And my friend Karen Moore said, you know, if you want to learn how to be a director, you should direct and not just sit up here like a spoil sport. And she said, because she worked at Paramount, and she said, there's a guy there named Harv Bennett who's been assigned to make the next Star Trek movie to produce it. I think you'd get along with him. Why don't you go talk to him? And this title, which I put in for my father, because he didn't know what Star Trek was or when it was supposed to take place. So I, I put that in for my father so he would have a clue. And what Star Trek always meant to me, and I thought most people, was Spock's pointy ear. So I started the movie with Spock's pointy ear. Approaching neutral zone, all systems normal and functioning. Leaving section 14 for section 15. Stand by. Harv was a quiz kid. He was one of that Chicago radio gang that knew all the answers to everything. I had a legal pad, and I said, why don't we make a list of everything we like? I don't care if it's a character, a plot, a subplot, a scene, a line of dialogue. Just let's make a list of all those things that we like. This is the Starship Enterprise. When, in fact, we made our little list of what elements of the five different screenplays we were going to keep. One of them was Kirk meets his son. Another was the Genesis planet. Another was the death of Spock. And another one was Khan. And I think Savick as a character from another script. So those were the five 
elements that had to be interwoven. May I remind the captain that if a starship enters the zone... I'm aware of my responsibilities, mister. The Star Trek fans are a very vocal uh, group, and when word got out that Spock was going to die in this movie, there were all kinds of reactions, negative, I might add, you know, and threatening letters, if Spock dies, you die, and so forth. And I said, well, maybe we can diffuse all these expectations. I said, let's put the simulator scene at the beginning, which is a fun way to start the movie anyway. Let's kill him off at the beginning, and then everybody will forget about it. Battle stations, activate shields. Shields activated. Inform the Klingons we are on a rescue mission. They're jamming all the frequencies, Captain. Klingons on attack course and closing. Klingons on attack Mr. Sulu, get us out of here. When Bill Shatner read it, he came in and he said, God, this is terrible. This is a disaster. I don't know what to... And I was up at ILM, actually, discussing the shots when Harv Bennett called me and said, we have a real problem. Bill doesn't like the script. And I remember it was only the second movie I'd ever directed, and I, going back and talking about these special effects shots and thinking, I'm just acting here. There's no movie. He, he doesn't want to do it. And anyway, I went back and I had a meeting with him. And I remember that my response to listening to what he had to say was that I kept having to go to the bathroom. Anyway, when I finally distilled, you should pardon the juxtaposition, when I, when I finally sort of boiled down, no, that isn't any better, when I, when I finally thought over what he was actually saying, it was something that I was able to fix in 24 hours. And I turned the thing around and sent it back to him. And I came back to my answering machine 12 hours after that, and there was this ecstatic message which I have saved for all time. I just took the tape out, and whenever he gave me stick on the set, I would play him this thing, you're a genius, I don't know how you did this, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and I'd just play it back at him and say, Bill, genius. Position, here lies, Is that all you got to say? What about my performance? I'm not a drama critic. Well, Mr. Sadler, are you going to stay with the sinking ship? Permission to speak candidly, sir. This is Kirstie Alley, who was so fond of her pointed ears that she used to wear them to sleep at night. She used to take them home with her. She wouldn't take them home. She auditioned for me, along with many other... She's from Wichita. She had never been in anything before. And I saw her and I said, this is, this is her, this is Savick. And I never thought about it. I had, I'm pleased to see that she's had such a terrific uh, career. But she, she gave a very actor performance because none of her own sort of impish humor is present in this. Uh, what you see in Cheers and so forth, her sense of comic timing, none of that. She was a Vulcan. So I was trying to root the movie in some kind of reality that I could relate to and that if you are in, the, in a big institution, is there dust? Do they vacuum? Are there, is it maintained? And I was actually hoping that Bill would not look at the vacuum, but Bill actually flicked him a look. I, I don't know why. Uh, and I was not interested enough at the time to do it again and say, don't look at him, just walk right by him. Oh, by the way, 
the wide angle is actually a front cutout that goes right in front of the camera and was no bigger than three feet by three feet at most, and you're sort of shooting through all this stuff. And, uh, and it was one of countless ways in which we were attempting to economize on this picture so we weren't going to have a big fancy budget. So we were, And I, I actually believe that art thrives on restrictions and that when you're forced to be ingenious, things get better than if you can simply throw oodles of money at the problem. I remember saying when we were talking about this movie, why can't they ever read a book? Why can't they ever do anything we do? So I'd pick the book, Tale of Two Cities, because it was the book I picked up in my house. And it turned out to be the book where everybody knew the first line and the last line. So it wound up bracketing the movie. Happy birthday, Jim. Romulan Ale. These guys were all very, very professional and very, very welcoming. What I noticed with Bill was that the more takes you did, the better he got. And the reason was that it was always very leading manish at the beginning. And if you did it long enough with him, he would get bored. And when he got bored, he just started being instead of acting. And that was, and that got better. Charming. And there's an actually specific point in the movie where I can point to something where I went take after take. Cheers. Cheers. Happy birthday. I don't know what to say. Well, you could say thank you. Thank you. There is an elegiac, melancholy quality to this man who, like Holmes, in the absence of stimulation, in the absence of a case, in Holmes's case, an adventure in Kirk's, they are landlocked, they are depressed, they are blue, they are conscious of their cells aging in their bodies. And, and Bones quite correctly says that the worst thing that happened to you was being promoted to being behind a desk. Get back your command. So we are introducing here, along with his birthday in the previous scene, which he's not happy about, the fact now that he needs, for Christ's sake, reading glasses, all these harbingers of mortality, which form, or I should say are intended to form, I don't know what people make of it, uh, some of the running subtextual themes of the movie. Before you really do grow old. Starship log, Stardate 8130.4. Log entry by First Officer Pavel Chekhov. Starship reliant on orbital approach to City Alpha 6 in connection with Project Genesis. We are continuing our search for a lifeless planet to satisfy the requirement of a test site for the Genesis experiment. To the best of my knowledge, 
the spaceships are silent. And I said that the Enterprise must always make a noise. And there was a screening room in Paramount that was next to the heating air conditioning duct. You know, brum, 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 brum. And I said, this is the noise I want. And so they just ran a, a loop of this throbbing, pulsing, heartbeat noise. I suppose it could be a particle of preanimate matter caught in the matrix. All right. Get on the compact, the Dr. Marcus. Aye, sir. There's also a certain uh, submarine U-boat element to this story, which in the final duel between Khan and Kirk and the nebula, where it's almost you almost hear sonar pinging, um, all that stuff is very much U-boat inspired. Um, and that was another element. The, the noise that the ship makes was really important to me. And in Gene Roddenberry's more idealized world, uh, the ships made no noise. They didn't need whatever was propelling them. You know, didn't make a noise. In my more earthbound world, did make a noise. The one place, funnily enough, where I wish I had been a little bolder was to take the noise of the ships out of the exteriors. Um, because, in fact, in space, ships do not, spaceships do not make noise. There is no sound. Or somebody said, in space, nobody can hear you scream. Uh, they, can't, they, they can't hear you rev up either. And every time there's a movie in outer space, the ships always rumble by overhead. And I thought, it'd be interesting to see it without that. But I didn't quite have the guts to push for it, and I probably would have had a fight with everybody connected with the movie. Uh, they, were, they were always holding back my more extreme ideas. Are you sure these are the correct coordinates? Captain, this is the garden spot to see the Alpha 6. I can barely see it. There's nothing here. This was a set. It was a huge set. And it's actually, I think, pretty successful. With the bigger budget, we would have gone someplace in the desert and, and filmed it instead of on a set, and that probably would have been better. Here, I believe this is acceptable. We all had to wear incredible protective gear, and there were all these jet engines blasting this stuff at us. I envied those guys because they had those face masks. We had, like, swimming goggles on. It was... It was not uh, the most agreeable, but uh, as we say, sort of worth it. There are things you would do to make a movie that you would never do for a woman. Um, they, you just say, well, okay, right, we'll do this.
What the hell happened? They crash, and where's the rest of the ship? I can't imagine the 21st century without books. I can't imagine the 22nd century without books. I can imagine it without people. I can see where that's going. But if there's people, then there will be books. I have to believe that. And here are all the references in case you're not about to, to get them to Moby Dick and so forth to clue you in. Well, the film begins the way I intended it to begin, except that the title was originally uh, Star Trek to the Undiscovered Country, which is a reference to, from the to be or not to be soliloquy in Hamlet, refers to death, the undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns. And since the subject of this film, or one of the subjects of this film, was going to be old age and death, uh, finally including the death of Spock, um, I thought this was an apt reference. The title was changed uh, without my knowledge while I was editing the movie, but I saved my title, The Undiscovered Country, and um, I used it again in Star Trek VI when I could. I had a little more clout. Let's give them a little more time. Here we have one of the very controversial moments in the movie. Khan removes one glove. And I gave him an entrance. I'm a big opera fan, so this movie is very operatic, dramatic and theatrical, and slowly, 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 he takes off, he reveals himself, but never removes the other glove. I said, don't take off the other glove. And... Uh, People have always said, What's, why doesn't he take off the other glove? And I always turn the question around and say, why do you think he doesn't take off the other glove? It's not the, my job to supply answers. You. It's your job as the audience to supply answers. But you, I never forget a face. Mr. Jekyll, isn't it? I never thought to see your face again. Chekhov, who is this man? Criminal captain, a product of late 20th century genetic engineering. Then this was our first day, and this is a, basically a six-page scene in which Ricardo Montalban came on the set Letter perfect, knew every line. And I tried to film it at the time, actually all in one master, so that he could work up his own head of steam as an actor. We did actually film it in one, although the coverage splits it up. But when he did it, it was so huge, it was way over the top, and I didn't really know him. And uh, I said, okay, well, now we've, we've got the moves and stuff. Let's let them light, and we'll go into the Winnebago and and talk while you're getting into your uh, costume. And he said, okay. And, you know, this is a great actor and an experienced actor, and I was some wet-behind-the-ears child, and I didn't know how well he would take to what I had to say, but I said, you know, Laurence Olivier said that an actor should never show an audience his top, because once you show your top, 
they know you got no place else to go. I said, and if this guy is a madman, mad people are always much crazier when they keep it tamped. And he said, down! Ah, yes, yes, I see. He now began to finish my sentences. Oh, yes, this is much better. Ah, ah, you're going to direct me. This is good. I need direction. I don't know what I'm doing up there. This is good. And we, at that moment, our collaboration was formed and took shape. And it became the most intimate collaboration of the movie. And when he raised his voice, when he lifted an eyebrow, he would always look at me first uh, and say, what if I, you know, do this? And my thing to him was always, smaller is better, keep it under wraps. A crazy person is really scary, especially if they don't, you know, let it, you know, it's not the storm scene from King Lear, that's for sure. And so this is an incredibly sinister scene. The tension here is unbearable. It is only the fact of my genetically engineered intellect that allows us to survive. On Earth, 200 years ago, I was a prince with power over millions. Captain Kirk was your host. He repaid his hospitality by trying to steal his ship and murder him. The other thing about Montalban, some actors have open faces and some actors have closed faces. Look at this man and you can see the wheels turning. You can see him thinking. Other actors, including many who are even stars, you can see them smile or frown or laugh or cry but you do not see the intellectual processes that are taking place. Even here, the voice not raised. Why? He's an enormous title. Now, here's the question I am most always asked, and I will tell you now for the record, that is Ricardo Montalban's chest. It is not a prosthetic device of any kind. He is one strong cookie, and he works out. What do you think? They killed 20 of my people, including my beloved wife. all at once and not instantly to be sure I would never tell you a joke that I didn't think was funny on the off chance that you might laugh I write the book that I would like to read I make the movie that I would like to see it never occurred to me that this might be corny I just believed it and I thought it was horrific and scary, and it still sort of gives me the willies. I guess because he gives me the willies, he made it play. And they're giving him great support with their reactions. Paul Winfield, I mean, really does not look happy about any of this. 
I never thought anything but the story, and I don't think in terms of this is for the kids. The only kid I'm thinking about is me. Of course. Not quite domesticated. Con. Chekhov is in this scene, although he was not in the Con episode. He was not in the in the series at that time. But I stuck him in. I mean, I could just have easily have switched it around, and Chekhov could have been on board the Enterprise, and and、uh, Uhura could have been in this scene, and it would have been technically correct. I never wasted any thought about it. By the way, if you read the Sherlock Holmes stories, which I'm very familiar with. Conan Doyle made all sorts of mistakes in the Sherlock Holmes stories. Sometimes Watson refers to his wound as being in his arm; other times, in his leg. Mrs. Hudson is the landlady, but one time she's Mrs. Turner. And Doyle himself was quite cavalier about it, and he said, "I have never much striven for it, meaning accuracy of detail, and no doubt have made some serious blunders in consequence. What matter, so long as I hold my readers?" And I guess that's the Chekhov defense. Enterprise, this is Admiral Kirk's party on final approach. Enterprise welcomes you. Prepare for docking. Well, introducing a real world, whether it is physical or emotional, was. My response to the television series when it came time to make this film, I cannot claim to have been an undiluted fan. First of all, I didn't know the television series very well, but I could never quite relate to it. I related to this when I suddenly began to think of it as the adventures of Captain Horatio Hornblower in outer space. Once I got that, I thought, okay, so this is about the Navy. This is about. Gunboat diplomacy, and I grew up loving those books, and so I redesigned the uniforms or caused them to be redesigned, and I made them more militaristic. And whether you call it the Navy or whether you call it the Coast Guard, which have more or less characterized all the shootoffs and spinoffs of series since. Mr. Scott, you old space dog. You're well. I had a wee bout, sir, but、uh, Doctor McCoy pulled me through. Wee bout of one. I really enjoyed Jimmy doing enormously. He was ready to go out there and act. And who do we have? I found him responsive to direction, a team player, which is important because this is a movie about a team. Funny. Well, shall we start with the engine room? We'll see you there, sir, and everything is in order. That'll be a pleasant surprise, Mr. Scott. I'll see you on the bridge, Admiral. Company dismissed. I get a big kick. I like reading subtitles, so I and I particularly liked it, and I did it in Star Trek VI even more. Because there's a lot of Klingon in the movie. In fact, there's Shakespeare in Klingon.
Well, Mr. Scott, are your cadets capable of handling a minor training cruise? Give the word, Admiral. Mr. Scott, word is given. Aye, sir. Admiral, what about the rest of the inspection? One does things by instinct and intuition. Uh, artists can sometimes intellectually justify the underpinnings of their choices or the motives or their thought processes, but sometimes you can't. And it's very frustrating in the movie business where you have executives sitting around who are not innately creative, although some of them are creatively gifted or creatively sympathetic, but somebody would say, well, why did you do X? Why doesn't he take off that glove? And my answer is, I don't know. It just seemed right at the time. That's not a very satisfactory answer to many of these people. But it is, I think, the way certainly I, as a creative person, work. You get an idea and you say, oh my God, this is great, and you know it's great, but you can't say why. Other people will tell you why. And I always think, by the way, that it's more interesting asking questions than it is answering them. And that art is not in the business of answering questions. It is in the business of raising questions, issues, and so forth. And that all the traditional artistic venues, literature, music, painting, they exercise a good deal of their impact by virtue of what they leave out. A painting does not move. Music has no image. In each case, it is the uh, willing and unskilled participation of the imagination on the part of the viewer, the reader, the listener, that completes the work of art. The painting moves when, you, when it meets your eye, and so forth. Only movies, the 20th century art medium, has the hideous capacity to do it all for you. And in doing so, it tends to render the audience passive. The great commercial directors who make movies are taught to put everything in. And the result is that sometimes I find myself sitting at those movies which are visually stunning. Every image is perfect. There is no distinction in priority between what is an important image, what is an unimportant image. It's all perfect. Everything is in it. And as a director, I'm always looking to leave things out. And this is the revamped, as I would have it, bridge of the Enterprise. I originally had a no smoking sign here, but they made me take it away. God, I wanted them to have pockets in their trousers so they could use them, but we didn't have the money to put the pockets in. Strike a certain attitude, you know. It's why cigarettes are in movies, so you have something to do with your hands. And I don't think there's another piece of information we could squeeze into the memory banks. To me, Bibi Besh, who was really a great actress, neither of these actors, unfortunately, 
are alive. They both died prematurely. She was a wonderful actress. I used her again in The Day After, where, incidentally, I also used the cinematographer from this movie, Gain Rescher. I wanted her to be a woman who was so beautiful that you could well imagine that in her early youth, a wandering uh, Lothario with a girl in every port like Captain Kirk might well have fallen for her. And at the same time, I felt that if it was to be any kind of meaningful or long-lasting or memorable relationship, she had to have more than just look. She had to be intelligent, and and uh, Bibi brings both of that. She she has a face where you can see all the thoughts flitting back and forth. I was looking for two things. I was looking in regular one for people who looked intelligent enough to be scientists and ethnically diverse enough to give variety to to give a sort of um, ecumenical cast literally to the lab. So an African-American, an Asian, and, and so forth. That's because we've got these two Aryans in charge. And I thought it was important that Kirk's son look like his wife or his girlfriend rather than look like him. I thought that was too on the nose. And it would give it away. And here's the big reveal. Well done, Commander. And with Khan's henchmen, I guess I was thinking sort of genetically engineered bikers. They were all big, they were all athletic, and I presumed that if they were engineering them genetically, the very least that they would do was all have great muscle figures. Thank you, sir. Lieutenant, are you wearing your hair differently? It's still regulation, Admiral. And here the writing was meant to be obscurely flirtatious. And it was meant to be funny, because I can't stop myself from that. And one, that's one of the things that I brought to this, in addition to its earthbound quality, it's humor. I fail to resolve the situation. There's no correct resolution. It's a test of character. May I ask how you dealt with the test? I found that the television series, or at least the episodes I'd seen, and particularly the first movie, was serious to the point I thought of... I thought it was sort of pompous. And um, I kept trying to sort of kid it. And somebody said later to me that maybe it was fortunate that I was not really a Star Trek fan because it induced in me or it... It gave me a sort of friendly irreverence for the whole thing in an, what I think or hope is a non-malicious fashion. Um, there's a lot of wordplay uh, in the movie. I'll take it to my quarters, Uhura. Aye, sir. Never rains, but it pours. As a physician, you of all people should appreciate the dangers of reopening old wounds. I can hear you, Carol. What's wrong? What's the matter? Why are you taking Genesis away from us? Taking Genesis? Who's taking Genesis? Who, who, is, who is taking Genesis? I can see you, but I can't hear. Carol. Jim, 
Life, I think, as we know it, is not all serious, and it's not all a barrel of laughs either, so things vary. I think the sort of TV movie mentality is that it's a one-issue thing. If you're making a movie about AIDS, then that's all that's in the movie is AIDS. Life is a grand mixture of what is insulting, what is gratuitous, what is gravely serious, what is wildly hilarious. That's, by the way, in a good life. Uh, you know, if you're in Afghanistan and you're starving to death, it's probably serious most of the time. But we're talking about what we're familiar with, what my idea of life is. Life in a given day, you have things that are hilarious, and then the phone rings, and uh, they say your father-in-law's had a heart attack. That was my Saturday. has kept the peace for 100 years. I cannot and will not subscribe to your interpretation of this event. You may be right, Doctor. But what about Reliant? She's on her way. We have a problem. Something may be wrong in regular one. We've been ordered to investigate. If memory serves, regular one is a scientific research laboratory. I told Starfleet Command all we had was a boatload of children. This was an interesting scene. Leonard hated the set, and I don't think he's wrong. I like what's behind him, but the sparklets uh, water truck motif to his left um, he thought was very cheesy, and I think he was right. And a director's job is to keep track of the details. Somebody said the devil is in the details. And great movies like The Godfather, every detail is correct. This was... Uh, something that I did not attend to properly. Spock's room as a Vulcan, I think, should have been atmospheric and mysterious and different. And when I did his cabin aboard the Enterprise in Star Trek VI, I took damn good care to make sure that I didn't annoy him again and that I paid attention to it. But I had, you know, four more films under my belt by then and I was a little more attentive to some of those details. The scene here between these friends is so good and you're so caught up in the story that nobody too much minds till I point it out to them how dull the the room is and how sort of overlit the the scene is. Uh, it, it, it should have been a very different one, but the, the story and the acting is carrying it. Were I to invoke logic, logic clearly dictates that the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Or the one. You are my superior officer. You are also my friend. I have been and always shall be yours. Stop energizers. Stop energizers. Look on speakers. An emergency situation has arisen. By order of Starfleet Command, as of now, 1,800 hours. I'm assuming command of this vessel. There's no question that Hornblower and the sea, that was something I also talked to Jamie Horner about. I spoke to him about the nautical, nautical but nice. Engage warp engines. Prepare for warp speed. Ready, sir. And I said, keep thinking oceans, keep thinking 
Debussy, La Mer, that sort of stuff. And so we tried to get them out of port without making such a meal of it as they did in Star Trek The Motion Picture, but we sort of, with our own music, and we sort of got the let out. Course to intercept Enterprise. Ready, sir. Excellent. Councilman? Sir, may I speak? We're all with you, sir. But consider this. We are free. We have a ship and the means to go where we will. This is the same set as the, I believe, as the bridge of the Enterprise, but it's constructed in pie slices. So by pulling out the sections of the pie and putting them together differently, you have a different ship. Again, it's a money-saving device. It also enables you to pull out parts of the set to get the cameras in. I'll chase him round the moons of Nibia and round the Antares maelstrom and round Perdition's flames before I give him up. Prepare to alter course. Space Station Regular One, please come in. Doctor and again, here's the, here's the other bridge. Here's the bridge of the Enterprise, and it's it's just the the same stuff reordered, and the chairs are a different color or something. But it's very efficient use of resources. There are two possibilities. The killer is the 360 degree set, because that is coverage in all directions. So scenes take a tremendous amount of time give up Genesis, she said. Gene Hackman once said to me that he thought that the best acting took place in confined spaces, small spaces. I said, what about Lawrence of Arabia? He said, there are exceptions. Um, but um, in fact, uh, I think there's something to what he says. And I don't think, I mean, there are exceptions. But I, I think that... Uh, there's something very um, nice about seeing actors in enclosed places where you can see their pores and so forth. Kirk, Admiral James T. Security scan approved. Summary, please. Project Genesis. A proposal to the Federation. Carol Marcus. Yes. What exactly is Genesis? Well, put simply, Genesis is life from lifelessness. At a certain point, you're going to see the Genesis project. And this was groundbreaking technique at the time. It was that's now done all the time all this CGI stuff, but this is very primitive, early uh, stuff when you see the uh, planets start to form. And I mean, now it's the logo on the nightly news, but at the time we did it, it was gasp, gasp, gasp. Who had seen this before? The device is delivered, instantaneously causing what we call the Genesis effect. This is the shot I was, this, this sequence, this ILM. results.
it's the use of motion control and CGI and how it's all put together and suddenly we're flying over lakes and we're it, it's uh, all this use of computer animation this was a very early stage of it it could probably be done a million times better now and, and probably is a million times better now but take a look at this whole shot and you you see we started with a dead planet and now we have something Here's a typical exchange between Spock and McCoy. It's a new matrix. Do you have any idea what you're saying? I was not attempting to evaluate its moral implications, Doctor. As a matter of cosmic history, it has always been easier to destroy than to create. The uh, conflict between his humanism and passion and uh, Spock's Sherlockian logical detachment. Really, Dr. McCoy, you must learn to govern your passions. They will be your undoing. God, Leonard loved this line. He said, that is pure Spock. My God, the man's talking about logic. We're talking about universal Armageddon. You green-blooded inhuman. This was the liberal humanist in the Henry Fonda tradition, that sort of blue-eyed, American, simple, straightforward humanity. That was D. Kelly in person. He was really playing a version of himself when he did that in the movie, was my impression. He was also had, the, had the, by far the longest track record of any of the people involved in this movie. He'd been in movies for years and years and years. His credits are as long as your arm. When you create something, you have to sort of be prepared to reconcile the difference or the shortfall between what you intended and what you achieved. Roddenberry, I, you know, had his own sort of utopian vision about the perfectibility of man and stuff, and I never really believed that. And I don't think the show demonstrates it. I think it is about gunboat diplomacy. In the final analysis, the Enterprise fires. They're always shooting and bringing civilization and coming to worlds where they don't approve of tyrannical enterprises, no pun intended, and then they substitute their own quote-unquote enlightened version of how society is supposed to work, which is essentially American. These uh, costumes were the thing I paid the most attention to. Here was where I could really start from scratch. You know, Khan was inspired from the sort of the fugitive look of, sort of a bicycle, a motorbike gang that had been left out in the desert too long. Yellow alert. Energized defense fields. I wasn't going to change the bridge of the Enterprise beyond what I did change, which was to add as many blinking lights as I could. If I could have changed it more, 
Number one, it wouldn't have been a 360-degree set. And number two, this screen that they look at, it is not, in fact, a transparent piece of reinforced glass of some kind. It is a big television screen, and I always hated that. Lock phasers on target. Locking phasers on target. They're locking phasers. Ray shields. Fire! As I say, I was inspired by the Hornblower movies, and if I could have had more junk and more degradation, if I could have afforded it, I would have. Uh, but it certainly would have been in line with the battles of uh, frigates and men of war that you saw in movies like the Seahawk, where tons of rigging, I guess our equivalent would have been wiring, would you know be falling down out of the ceilings as a result of cannon hits and and so forth. We did some. The explosion in the engine room is, is a pretty good example of it. I can't get power, sir. They knew exactly where to hit us. Who? Who knew where to hit us? And why? One thing is certain. We cannot escape on auxiliary power. Visual. I had the storyboard. Uh, these sequences, every shot had to be planned because we did not have the resources to sort of experiment with what was going to be uh, used. Um, storyboarding is a, is a useful tool in big action sequences and special effects sequences. It, I, would, I would say it's indispensable. I would not like to use it the rest of the time because uh, I, I think the overuse of it robs the film of, of spontaneity. And, and um, I remember that the, the only spontaneous moment uh, in Raiders of the Lost Ark was when that fly went into Paul Freeman's mouth and he kept on acting. And I thought, well, there's the only thing that probably wasn't storyboarded was that fly. And I... I liked it because it looked like it just happened. On screen, sir. You still remember, Admiral. I cannot help but be touched. I, of course, remember you. What is the meaning of this attack? Where is the crew of the Reliant? Surely I have made my meaning plain. I mean to avenge myself upon you, Admiral. I've deprived your ship of power, and when I swing around, I mean to deprive you of your life. But I wanted you to know first who it was who had beaten you. Come. The funny thing about actors is that while some of them may be like Bill, sort of instinctively protective of certain things, image, whatever. When audiences really love actors is when they take chances, when they expose themselves, when they let themselves get fat for a role or go bald for a role or whatever, let it hang out. 
and you get to really see the actors acting and not just what's the difference between an actor and a movie star an actor is someone who pretends to be somebody else a movie star is somebody who pretends that somebody else is them actors will change their face will change their hair will change their voice will disappear into the role a movie star doesn't disappear there are, you know, borderline cases where it's a bit of both. Bogart and Spencer Tracy were always Bogart and Spencer Tracy, but they, you know, had a way, whether he was playing Captain Quig in the Cane Mutiny or Charlie Allnut in the African Queen, of sort of half disappearing or exploiting who they are to bring you the character. Cary Grant, always Cary Grant. Bill Shatner is essentially a movie star. He is Bill Shatner. So the question was, how far could I push him in Spencer Tracy land in this role? Damn. Admiral, it's coming through now, Com. Reliance prefix number is 16309. I don't understand. Learn. Why things work on a starship. Each ship has its own combination code to prevent an enemy from doing what we're attempting. Using our console to order Reliant to lower her shield. Assuming he hasn't changed the combination, he's quite intelligent. Fifteen seconds, Admiral. Khan, how do we know you'll keep your word? Oh, I've given you no word to keep, it. In my judgment, you simply have no alternative. I liked it because he had to whip out his glasses at the crucial moment. I thought that was good. Stand by to receive our transmission. But here's an example of where doing something again and again with Bill, it got better. He's going to turn around to say to Khan, here it comes. Here it comes. Now, Mr. Smith. The first six times we did it or ten times we did it I felt that Bill kept telegraphing it here it comes there was a kind of a yodel in his voice and I said you know Bill this is not a dummy you're talking to that's sarcasm uh, you're, you have, you're giving a here it comes you're giving a double meaning to it and we kept doing it until, until he got so bored he said it the way he just saw it and that was when it got interesting Damage the photon control and the warp drive. We must withdraw. No! No! no. We must! I think it's fair to say that Bill grew up playing leading men. And this was a crossover experience for him in which the subject of the movie... Remember, this This was uh, the topic, aging, mortality, was something that he felt, and I think we all do, very conflicted about. Tolstoy said that the biggest surprise in a man's life is old age. And I think there was a process involved in getting Bill to see that he was playing a role and that it wasn't necessarily him 
once he did that, once he sort of got into it, that idea, he was still protective of himself. Originally, we had specified that Kirk was 49. And he said, let's not have that. Let's not specify his age. And I, I'm aging, but don't, we don't have to get specific. Of course, I feel that in specificity, you will find universality. But that in universality, you will only find cafeteria food. I think you have to be specific, but there were places where I had to yield. Warp speed. I... <sighs> he stayed at his post when the trainees ran. Admiral. And again, here's, you know, one of those messy moments, his blood, bloody hand on Kirk's tunic, and his face doesn't look too good. The dreadful thing about the encounter with Reliant that we witnessed is Kirk being defeated, Kirk being caught with his, as he says, with his britches down. And I think to short-circuit his chagrin, his guilt, his remorse... By cutting that out, mistake. I also think it gives a chance to re-explain to the audience, in case they didn't get it when it was going on, just what happened back there. If it doesn't do something emotionally, there's not much point in doing it simply for, you know, narrative clarity. It'll just hang there slightly dry. Here, I think both things are accomplished. You have Kirk's chagrin, and you have a reiteration of what went down. Without the chagrin if one character had simply been explaining it to another. Someone said, I don't, I don't get it. How do we uh, get out of that? I, I don't think that would have been particularly meaningful or interesting. Here, you kill two birds with one stone. We're only alive because I knew something about those ships that he didn't. And Kirk is really, really annoyed with himself. He performed badly. It's always interesting to see a hero with feet of clay, somebody who makes a big mistake. If your hero is never defeated, then he has no adversity over which to triumph, nothing to come back from. I have seen movies that I've made or read books that I've written, and I honestly don't remember having done it. And I go, God, this is really good. I really like this, but I, I don't remember. Um, I think... For me, and I think for a lot of artists or creative people, that when you are doing the creative stuff, you are going into a kind of trance where ideas and th thoughts and intuitions are, are coming and you don't really, you're not really aware of it. You look up and it's hours later, hours later, where did the day go? What have I been doing? And then later when you read it, well, where did I get this? I don't know. I don't know. Taze is unstunned. Move out. The way I worked in this movie, and typically do, unless there's a compelling reason to change the M. Oh, is to stage the action first with the actors. 
show me the scene. Let's fiddle with it. Some of it we've done in rehearsal. Some of it we now do on the set. The cameraman watches. I watch. And then you figure out what is the best way to shoot this scene. What is this scene about? Whom do we wish to see doing what at any given moment? What scenic composition is appropriate? And where should the camera be? What do we want to see? Uh, how is this laying itself out? Obviously, that's not how Busby Berkeley worked, where you were literally staging dance numbers for the camera. The process is completely reversed. But here, once I see where they're going, they're wandering around this deserted space station, spooky. Um, then I think, okay, how to photograph it? Spooky. The place is abandoned. The lights are on low. It's a maze. They're going to go off in different directions. And in the scenes on the bridge, what is that scene about? What is this scene that makes it different from the other scene? And if it isn't different from the other scene, maybe there's something wrong with the scene. signal. Please. Commander Uhura, this is Lieutenant Savick. We're all right. Please stand by. Out. Oh, sir. It was Khan. We found him on City Alpha 5. Easy. Easy. He, he put creatures in our bodies to control our minds. Rehearsing is great. No, but... Agents and studios don't like you to do it, but all the creative people love to rehearse. No one wants to go out there stone cold and try to figure it out. And it's always cheaper in the long run. You don't want it to be figuring out things while 60 people are standing around and the meter's running. I'm not good enough to go in there and wing it. I, I can't do that. It was interesting that... Somebody said to Billy Wilder, who was the greatest director of your generation? And he said, William Wyler. You know why? Because he was stupid. And whoever was interviewing him said, what do you mean? And he said, well, the rest of us, you know, self-styled geniuses, we knew we could go in there and just sort of dream it up and be brilliant on the spot. And sometimes we were. But a lot of times we weren't. Willie Wyler had no illusions. He knew he would have to do the work. And I fall into that category of plan it down to the last bootlace. If you plan it, then, paradoxically, you're free to let go of your plans to improvise, to do a lot of things. But as long as you've got the whole idea in everybody's head first, that's why I like to rehearse. Which means nobody remained to turn it off. Those people back there bought escape time for Genesis with their lives. This is not logical. These coordinates are deep inside regular, a planetoid we know to be lifeless. If stage two was completed, it was going to be underground. It was going to be underground, she said. Stage two of what? Kirk to Enterprise. Spock here. Hey, Captain Spock, damage report. Admiral. If we go by the book, like Lieutenant Savick, 
Hours could seem like days. I read you, Captain. Let's have it. The situation is grave, Admiral. We won't have main power for six days. Auxiliary power has temporarily failed. Restoration may be possible in two days. By the book, Admiral. Meaning you can't even beam us back? Not at present. Captain Spock, if you don't hear from us within one hour... There was actually a time when I calculated that there was a couple of weeks where I never saw daylight. Because I would come to work before the sun went up and be in a soundstage all day. I guess I saw daylight when I would go from the soundstage to the cutting room at lunchtime, or to see dailies. I would go, I would go directly into a screening room, see dailies while I was eating lunch, go back into the soundstage, shoot until after the sun went down, and then go into the cutting room. So there was just very little outside. Somebody said that dailies are sentences in a book that hasn't been written yet. And editing is the stringing together of those dailies or parts of those dailies to make the book. That's writing by another name. And writing, to me, is a contemplative process. You can write fast, um, but there should always be time to go and do the laundry or take a bath and stare at your toes in the water because that's when a lot of the work gets done. That's when you get ideas how to make it better or what you can lose, how it gets different. Genesis, I presume. If you have a post-production schedule where you are editing, which I'm claiming is like writing, without time to think about what you're doing, without what is what an executive might call downtime hey you're not working you're you're in the tub looking at your toes yeah yeah but this is working i'm thinking about stuff if you're just sort of functionally cutting together to get from a to b blah, 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 because you haven't got any time to do anything else i think it's a different kind of movie than it might be if you had that kind of contemplative time to be more ingenious there are a lot of different ways we could have put this movie together a lot of different ways you could have told the story. Do you want to start from the beginning and go forward? Or do you want to start in the middle and work backward? Do you want to start at the end and say, how do we get here? Uh, lots of choices. But we never, you know, got to make any. And in this case, that was all right. It seems to have worked. Sorry, I don't know. Your Excellency, have you been... In other words, if the movie simply comes out as nothing more than a reflection of what you wrote... In some ways, you could argue that it's almost not worth making the movie itself. We could just distribute the screenplay and not do that. But obviously, things happen when you film it. Screenplay, screenplay is just a blueprint for a building that hasn't been built yet. And maybe it's a good blueprint, and, but chances are, when you're actually building it, when you're actually filming the screenplay and the actors are doing things that you didn't imagine that are better or worse may have to be compensated for, may have to cons be concealed, or are so good that you suddenly don't need other things. And as I've said, all screenplays, and all plays for that matter, tend to be overwritten. And when you actually preview the movie, you suddenly discover that the audience is way ahead of you. They're much faster. They're, they've seen everything audiences now. It's very hard to fool them. 
They know, they know where you're going. They're there waiting for you. And suddenly, these scenes, which seemed so crucial, now can come out. Now they're extra. Now they don't work. And I always sort of decry that sort of director's cut thing where you go back and you put in stuff that you originally cut out. I saw a version of Jaws once that had a whole bunch of stuff put back in. The movie was not as good. Simply wasn't as good. That whole scene where they all go chasing after the shark or something, like a posse, I didn't think it played. And I guess Mr. Spielberg didn't think it played either because he took it out. This happens in classical music, too. They find, you know, missing pieces of Verdi's opera and they decide to put it in, but Verdi cut it out. Maybe he had a good reason for it and stopped treating it as though it were a piece of the missing true cross and therefore had to be put back. Come, bloodsucker. You're going to have to do your own dirty work now. Do you hear me? Do you! Kirk. Kirk, you still Still, old friend. You've managed to kill just about everyone else, but like a poor marksman, you keep missing the target. Perhaps I no longer need to try. Well, Kirk is a slightly larger-than-life personality. So is Khan, but it's funny that Khan achieves it by being so quiet. Where you want to say, well, why don't you, why don't you yell, why don't you scream, why don't you act as crazy as, as, you, as you are? And there's something much more ominous. I'm a man with secrets. You don't know what I'm going to do next. Be frightened. On the basis of this movie, and I, I watched him and I said, listen, you should be playing King Lear. And he said, but what about my accent? And I said, who cares? You speak beautifully. You're, you're an extraordinary actor. And you're wasted. I mean, this man did... Don Juan in Hell on Broadway. You know, and there he is doing Fantasy Island. I mean, it, it's not... He's doing that with one hand tied behind his back and his eyes are closed and he's out to lunch someplace. That doesn't challenge him. For better or worse, and I'd like to think for better, this challenged him. He loved this. He loved playing Khan. Loved playing Ahab, Lear, Lucifer, all rolled into one. Enterprise followed orders. She's long since gone. If she couldn't obey, she's finished. So are we, it looks like. I don't understand. Who's responsible for all this? Who is Khan? Well, it's a long story. We appear to have plenty of time. Is there anything to eat? I don't know about anybody else, but I'm starved. How can you think of food at a time like this? First order of business, survival. The first screening that I saw of Star Trek II was at Paramount Studios um, in their then big theater. There's now a bigger one. And uh, there were many, many issues hotly contested between me and producers and the studio and, as usual, getting very beat up. 
Uh, but the movie played so well that all these issues were laid to rest and we just locked the picture. We can't just sit here. I think it's really important when making a Captain Hornblower movie or a Captain Blood movie to know your audience. This is not a movie for what they call an adult audience, by which they mean, you know, an R or an NC-17 or an X rating. This is a movie for young people, kids. It's an adventure story. It is not unpleasant as it is, but it leaves things to the imagination, and it's not, this is not a movie shot. Um, I mean, I just saw uh, Behind Enemy Lines, which is a movie that takes place in Bosnia, and it's a pretty horrifying uh, tale and in, intended to be, and in in the sense aimed at a at a, a different audience. Are we together? If you make a pirate movie, well, we you're making a pirate movie for a teenage and post-teenage, early twenties audience. You're not you're not making it for either very itty bitty kids or you know grown up, sophisticated people. This is middle brow entertainment. We didn't want to bounce off the charts and bounce you out of the movie while you say, oh, God, that's so disgusting. I can... It's not that kind of movie. He's a lot like you. In many ways. Please tell me what you're feeling. There's a man out there I haven't seen in 15 years. He's trying to kill me. You show me a son, I'd be happy to help him. My son. And now we come to one of the unintentionally funny lines in the movie, maybe the only unintentionally funny line. You mustn't. What am I feeling? He says he feels old. And she says, old. let me show you something that will make you feel young. And I thought, well, gosh, if I had it to do all over again, I probably would have restructured that. Let me show you something that'll make you feel young as when the world was new. Bibi Besh is the daughter, uh, or was the daughter, of a, of a Viennese actress. Um, there's a long list of credits in theater and also television that she had done. A lot of wonderful actors are essentially wasted. They very seldom get roles worthy of what they can do. They're always squeezing down to... Donna Reed was the perfect example of that. Donna Reed was an extraordinary actress, and where did she wind up? You know, on the Donna Reed show. This I like. I like this shot, but I don't. I don't like what what follows because I. I think again we would have been better off going to a real, tropical paradise or something, instead of where we wind up. This this does not work for me, and we tried so hard. But it just it looks. I don't know what it looks like, but it doesn't look like something that I recognize. It looks like a stunt or something. But this is the inevitable duel that you have with studios that, you know, won't give you the money up front to do it right and then complain when you did it wrong later. 
and you just were actually making do with the resources that you were allocated. I've had that on other movies. There are places to cut that have nothing to do with what you see on the screen. What size, you know, trailer everybody has and so forth. There are ways to, to do it, and that's sort of part of the game, as far as I'm concerned, is to see if you can do it as efficiently, I don't even say as economically, as efficiently as possible. I remember they told me that I had 49 days to shoot the movie, and I said, I need 53. And that's where we came in. I reprogrammed the simulation so it was possible to rescue the ship. What? He cheated. I changed the conditions of the test. Got a commendation for original thinking. I don't like to lose. Then you never faced that situation. Faced death. I don't believe in the no-win scenario. Character Spock, it's two hours. Are you ready? Right on schedule, Admiral. Just give us your coordinates and we'll beam you aboard. All right. I don't like to lose. Kirk and Spock are communicating on a private level between them, which is reflective of their long-standing intimacy and the and the facility with which they communicate with one another. They speak in a kind of shorthand. It's, it, 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 in effect, it's code. No uncoded messages on an open channel. You lied. She is like the audience. She's the newcomer, and she is bewildered. And she is also, as a Vulcan, shocked by the apparent mendacity. You lied. I exaggerate. Inoperative, low sea deck. What is we're here on? Not much, Admiral. And, and Kirk's rather blunt schoolboy line. I don't like to lose. Which I thought is so... Again, it's pretty earthbound. Admiral on the bridge. Battle stations. Tactical. This red light and their red uniforms on film work better than they do on a television. So the red tends to sort of blur. Um, another reason for getting off the red. Not for the film, but for when the film is televised. So the question was, how soon can we get out of it the problem is that after a while the audience doesn't like to look at it sauce for the goose mr savick the odds will be even there's james horner is walking here in a minute uh, yes, there he is. He just walked by. Um, I have a piece of complete trivia, but... And here's my famous running out the guns scene. Horner, 
I said, forget, don't compete with Jerry Goldsmith. Don't, don't, let's not do that. And I've always been trying to, and by the time I got to six with Cliff Eidelman, it was, I said, well, I'm tired of these marches that always begin the rumty tum. Let's do something different. I talked about, I remember uh, Khan a lot and Moby Dick and uh, Ahab and uh, I remember at one point when Khan was giving his long soliloquy about why he's so annoyed at Kirk and at, on earth I was a king and I said, you know, and I said, distant trumpets, the, 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 the echoes of, of fleeting glory and... and uh, We'd, I talked to him also about Peter Pan and Dickens and all the other literary references and themes in addition to old age and death that were going to be interwoven, I hoped, throughout the uh, film. So now we're into the world of submarines. Had submarines and sweaters. And I like that he has a sweater because I don't understand why people won't wear sweaters no matter what year it is. Dan, they the escaped answer. from uh, Regula, and what did he do? He, he took some an article of clothing with him. He took a sweater. He may have taken other things with him. Um, if it bounces you out of the movie, it's that's too bad. That's wrong. But I can I know what the intention was. The, in, the intention was to just humanize these people with accoutrements that you could recognize. I'm laughing at the superior intellect. There's obviously more heating on Khan's ship and they're intent on turning it up still further because they're running around, you know, with a lot of décolleté um, and they don't seem to be chilly. I'll say this for him, he's consistent. We are now entering the Mutara Nebula. Having an artistic experience is not an intellectual experience. It's supposed to be an emotional experience. Emergency lights. When you start to think something is wrong, if you think when it's over, when you leave, and you start to think about it, then it's good. That's so much the better. But if you are starting to notice things, then the portion of your mind that I want engaged as an artist is not engaged. It's being bounced out of the movie, and the sweater is then a bad idea. Um, and there's no two ways about it. Tactical. All works of art, music, books, literature, painting, movies, all works of art are inevitably and ineluctably products of the time and circumstances during which they were created. If he never wore a sweater, he would still look at this movie and say, ah, early 80s. I don't know why, but there must be a dozen technical or other aesthetic things, either in the dialogue or the camera work, that would tell you. If you saw three movies that were set in 1776, one made in 1956, one in 1976, one in 1996, you would look at these movies, all ostensibly set in the same year, and you would still be able to figure out within a year or two of when they were made. Target, sir. Basilog, inoperative, sir. Best guess, Mr. Sutton. Fire one ready. I don't really enjoy doing special effects movies because 
to get the effects right half the time, you start slowing down and slowing down and slowing down. But the part I did enjoy was Hold your course. having these shots dribble in in the final editing process. I knew what they were going to be. We had storyboarded the sequence, but they were always better. It was always exciting. You always got jazzed when one of these things came in and you plugged it in and you went, oh, wow, is this good. And so it's a little like the moment when you're making the movie when you go to score the movie. By this time, you're exhausted. You've shot it. You've edited it. And scoring, if it goes well, is the treat. It's the thing that you sort of give yourself to renew your interest in the movie so you can get through the mix, which is going to be another rather tedious but crucial part of the process. Admiral, I've got to take the mains off the line. It's radiation. Scotty. Joachim. Yours is superior. Special effects mock-ups are much better now than they used to be. And when there used to be drawings, and then there were you know, uh, what they now have are what's called animatics. Frequently, studios will make directors preview their movies with incomplete visual effects, with those animatics, those sort of cartoony versions. And no matter how you explain it to the audience, before you begin, you're not going to see there will be these sort of cartoony-looking effects, and they'll eventually be great. It never works. They always bounces them right out of the movie. They always laugh, and the studio always gets very nervous. You followed me this far. I'll be back. It totally skews the audience response to the movie, and it spooks the studio. It happens every time. There are no exceptions. This pattern indicates so. Part of what happens is you decide beforehand what is the length of the shot. Once you know the length of the shot, then you know how fast the ships have to move in order to play. In the shot, it's something that they're much more adept at figuring out than I am. I mean, one of the funny things about doing this movie, and why I called it an indoor-outdoor movie, and I was responsible for the indoor stuff, and they were responsible for the outdoor stuff, and what they did was they made me look good. Because they would take my footage, and there would be this space, and this is what's supposed to go in the middle of it. And we had discussed it and discussed it and discussed it, and then they went and got it right. And there were very few times when I looked at something and said, "You know, this lacks the amount of heft or weight or something like that." Well, they were pretty, they were pretty good at it by now. They would see my cut footage or some black and white dub of my cut footage. And there would be the spot where their stuff was supposed to go, and they could certainly put it in, look at it for themselves, make whatever adjustments they want before sending it down. It upped the chances of them getting it right, and we would get on the phone and have conversations about it, and we'd all be watching the thing at the same time. And we definitely did these animatics. They would they would send us primitive versions of this.、It、would begin by a placeholder. Then it would be an animatic, and then the animatic might get even more sophisticated. And 
Finally, you'd get a version of the shot with one of the elements. There's a shot in the middle of the movie where there's Enterprise and Reliant go sailing over it. Well, for the longest time, all we had was Enterprise sitting there. And it sure looked boring. It hung on the screen for a long time. But once you added, finally added the other element, which is Reliance sailing by, then it, then it worked great. There wasn't nothing wrong with it. Uhura, send to Commander Reliant. Prepare to be boarded. Aye, sir. Commander Reliant, this is Enterprise. Surrender and prepare to be boarded. Enterprise to Reliant. You are ordered to surrender your vessel. Respond. Reliant, come in, Reliant. You are ordered to surrender your vessel. Enterprise to Reliant. You are ordered to surrender your vessel. Respond. You may not be aware that Ricardo Montalban uh, had a long-standing leg injury dating from, I think, 1945 or 48. Picture called Across the Wide Missouri. A horse rolled over him, and uh, he was either concealing a limp for the rest of his professional life. In this movie, I, I said, you know, go with it. Let it, you know, limp, whatever, do whatever you want, because that all works for this character. Every scar, every wound, every humiliation could all be channeled to his abandonment. His No, in fact, in the years after the injury, he was adept at completely concealing it. He was on Broadway dancing with Lena Horne in Jamaica with that limp, and no one noticed it. To the last. source on Reliant, a pattern I've never seen before. It's the Genesis wave. What? They're on a build-up to detonation. How soon? You encoded four minutes. There was no question that, I think, beginning as a verbal and musical person, I am very... I think of myself, I don't know if I am, but I think of myself as very sensitive to sound. And I think that as movie sound has got better and better and better, and we all know that movie sound was problematic from 1927 until the 60s, when they started introducing, you know, magnetic stripe and stereophonic. It, it lagged way behind your hi-fi system because there simply wasn't any room on the, on the, on the film to put the sound because Edison had kept it to 35 millimeter and we lived with what Edison decided until we found more ingenious ways of putting that sound on, onto the picture. And by the time we were doing this, we were all starting to, to understand how big a role, how subtle, how complex, how dense, how thin uh, sound could be in a movie, and certainly 
playing with it, playing with it, playing with it. What is Mr. Scott's condition? Nowadays, you go to see a movie like Harry Potter and or uh, Behind Enemy Lines, and or, or even uh, I just saw the Guillermo del Toro movie, which you must not miss, The Devil's Backbone. Extraordinary movie, and they're playing with sound all over the place. The ghost story. It's more than a ghost story, but. In the case of special effects where you have models flying about, the noise will give heft to those models. They may look a lot more flimsy and artificial without that sound backing them up. When you're talking about sound in picture, sound always dominates picture. There are no exceptions. If you take a photograph of a child running across a field of daisies and you play Chopin's Funeral March underneath that child, that child will die of an incurable disease, and there's no question about it. Uh, if you are in any doubt about this, get behind the wheel of your car and plug in different kinds of music on your stereo and look out the window, and you will see that the landscape is colored by what happens. By this time, as the audience is watching, interestingly enough, they, they're so involved in the story now, they've completely forgotten that Spock is going to die. They're simply, even here, it, it doesn't register, or it didn't, uh, in the, with the previews. They were, they're still wrapped up in the mechanics of the dilemma. This ship is going to blow, and there's nothing anybody can do. And what we are doing is we are rapidly approaching the one moment in the movie that I alluded to earlier, in which I thought, well, if they're going to throw things at the screen, this is when they're going to throw them. Even here, you're seeing him alive, you're seeing him functioning, and you've forgotten, you've forgotten what you were worried about. Because that simulator scene at the beginning literally disarmed your expectations. There's that moment where I knew if we were in trouble, that's when it was going to come. And it never did. Didn't come at the first preview. They were just so caught up in this story. This movie is a narrative, whatever else it does. If it were a book, it's a page turn. Where somebody says, Jim, I think you better get down here. I think you better get down here. Scotty says, I think you better get down here. And we cut to that empty chair. And that was the moment I dreaded for the first preview. The interesting thing about these previews is that basically how it plays 
the first preview is how it's always going to play. Numbers may go up, may go down, but basically the jokes that work will work, the tension that doesn't, doesn't, and there's very little you can do. the whole compartment to die. He's dead already. It's too late. The question is not whether you kill him. It's whether you kill him well. If it's perceived as the working out of the clause in the star's contract then they're going to hate it. If it's organic, if it's really part of the story, then no one's going to object. See, Spock still isn't dead. He's, he's, see, there's that moment. We were filming this scene, and I turned around and looked at Gain Rescher, the cinematographer, and I saw that he was crying. And then I looked around at the other people in the crew while we were filming this. And people were standing there crying and putting fists in their mouths to not make noise. And, you know, I began to realize that this was sort of bigger than I knew. Henry James said that life is hot, but art is cool. If you are the puppeteer, you cannot be out front sobbing at the performance. You must be backstage holding the strings and making sure that they don't get tangled. I never took the Kobayashi Maru test. So my objectivity, or as some have characterized it, my irreverence, served me well here. This movie was a learning process. I earned my way into my affection for this material. It grew on me. And it grew on me to this point that when we got to this scene, which was deliberately scheduled for just about the end of the movie, um, I had by this time become sufficiently immersed with these actors, these people, this experience, as to make it legitimately, as opposed to sentimentally or nostalgically, meaningful to me. But it was real good to stay outside it. My job is not to cry. My job is to make you cry. We are assembled here today to pay final respects to our honored dead. And yet it should be noted that in the midst of our sorrow... Well, they were like a family, but not a family that necessarily always got along. It was like a real family. 
which is to say they had their feuds, their reconciliations, their clique divisions, they had their uh, envy, their ambitions, but they were used to the fact by this point that it was forever. Whether you liked it or you didn't like it, the fickle finger of fate had chosen these actors years ago to be in this television series that was the thing that wouldn't die. And many or all of them may have felt that in other venues, in other projects, they had done better work. They are not the first nor will they be the last artists to be saddled with an ambivalent relationship to the thing for which they are most well known. Arthur Sullivan, you know, sort of grew to resent his dependence on Gilbert. And Gilbert the same. But Gilbert and Sullivan together is what we remember. And uh, there was Eugene O'Neill's father, who always had to play the Count of Monte Cristo, had to play Edmond Dantes. May have rather played Hamlet, but this is what he was remembered as. This is what they wanted. And there are actors who get identified with certain roles, and I'm, I'm blanking on necessarily what they are, but this is, this is who you are, this is who they want you to be, the Lone Ranger. You are the Lone Ranger. And the crew of the Enterprise is the crew of the Enterprise. This is Coke classic. This is it. And I think, since all of them are basically very sweet people, and as befuddled and bewildered by the success of this and its impact on their lives as anybody else, they have their own theories and their own reactions, but they don't know, they can't understand, they can either be grateful or angry, but they recognize it for a fact. You never have faced death. No, not like this. I haven't faced death. I've cheated death. I tricked my way out of death and patted myself on the back for my ingenuity. I know nothing. There's no question. Kirk finally says what every hero has to say. I know nothing. This is the peripatetic moment of Greek tragedy, when you learn that everything you thought you knew is wrong. And Kirk says, you know, everything I ever said was a lie about how to live, whether I was lying to you or lying to other people or lying to myself. I didn't know what I was talking about. Mouthing platitudes. You know, Teddy Roosevelt said a lot of things about being tough and this and that. And then when his son Quentin was killed in World War I, my God, he came apart. Wasn't, you know, it was different. It's different. And, also and that's, that is the moment when the hero, proud. it's now and only now that this man with this embrace is ready to come back to life and get past this aging malaise, this sense of loss, this crippling middle-age crisis 
so that by the end of the movie, he manages to make this remark when Bones says to him, how do you feel? And for the first time, I feel young. Captain's log, stardate 8141.6. Starship Enterprise departing for SETI Alpha 5 to pick up the crew of USS Reliant. All is well. And yet I can't help wondering about the friend I leave behind. Once they became convinced that this was a good movie, they suddenly realized that the franchise was going to continue. And once they realized that, they wanted to bring Spock back I must return and that we should at least leave the door open to that possibility. He's really not dead. As long as we remember him. This line came when I was reading while we were making the movie. I was reading it in a, you know, a director's chair. An article in the New York Times about Raoul Wallenberg and the great speculation as to whether Raoul Wallenberg was dead or not, and someone asked Seaman Wiesenthal if he thought Raoul Wallenberg was dead. And Seaman Wiesenthal said, he's not dead as long as we remember him. And I just said, oh, excuse me, and I ran over to the set and on the set put it in the movie. A person is not dead, whether we're talking about Roosevelt or your mother, whatever, as long as you remember him. That's a poetic way in which we keep people alive with memory. And that struck me as a sophisticated and acceptable way to perpetuate Spock. What I fought against was the quite excellent shot that, or series of shots, done in the San Francisco Botanical Gardens that Bob Salen did, of the, of the, because uh, I didn't, I didn't want to do it. Uh, I, I'm not a big believer in resurrections, um, and I thought that if you make people cry and you say he's dead. Then don't turn around and say, oh, we were just kidding. Um, I, I, I found that, I suppose, unconscionable. And when they, they asked me if I wanted to direct three or be involved with it, and I, de I declined. I, this is not a subject matter that I can relate to. I could, you know, once he's back in another story or something, I can do whatever. Your ongoing mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life forms and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. Can relate to the totality of the movie as being a satisfying narrative experience. It sort of has everything. It has life, it has death, it has friendship, it has adventure, it has surprise, it has implacable hatred, it has a certain mysticism, it has romance. Um, and somehow these elements seem to blend in, a, in an agreeable and proportionate concoction. It has 
you know, good characters. But I can't really judge this, nor is it either appropriate or important that I do so. I had the most intimate connection with it, having made it, and that must suffice.